0: hi everyone welcome to psychedelic conversations this is your hub for engaging in deep conversations around serotonergic hallucinogens that alter perceptions affect cognitive processes induce mystical and spiritual experiences enjoy the show Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Psychedelic Conversations podcast. I have a very special guest with me. His name is Joel Brier, and he is the founder of Cavalia Collective, uh, offering deeply transformative retreats involving psychedelic work supported by biotech and both Eastern and Western integrative practices and he specializes in 5NEO. So we're going to dive into that. Welcome, Joel. So great to have you.
1: Hello, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Lovely to be here.
0: Awesome. So I always start with the story. So this is this is becoming like the theme of our podcast now, um, because I'm really interested in how did you come across uh, paths with psychedelics and especially 5MEO? And yeah, if we can just begin with your story and then we can start yeah. talking about your offerings as well.
1: Absolutely. So I first came, uh, came into contact with psychedelics in the mid-90s uh, when I was a teenager and uh, immediately fell in love with them. I could tell there was something that separated them from the rest of the substances which I was experimenting with so rigorously. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a fairly spiritual family and my parents gave me a lot of the classical books, uh, you know, Timothy Leary's books, Aldous Huxley's books, um, Carlos Castaneda books, and so I was gobbling that up when I was young and uh, had some really big experiences with psychedelics. But uh, towards the end of the 90s or early 2000s, I kind of got clean off of all substances, including uh, psychedelics. And then they were reintroduced to me probably around 2007, 2008, um, when I was living in the Virgin Islands by my two yoga teachers. And at that time, I had you know, found myself in the midst of a deeply devoted and a serious yoga practice and um, you know, getting up every day at 3.30 in the morning and practicing for two and a half hours. And this time reapproaching plant medicines with a system of self-inquiry was a completely different game. And, uh, and it just kept on going from there. And here I am.
0: <laughs> wow, you seem so young still. So you must've delved into, what was the, uh, I mean, do you think having parents that are so open-minded and into um, alternative medicines really helps children? Cause coming from, I can see like, you must be in your twenties and I mean-
1: Oh, thank you. No, I'm 38. wow
0: so it must be the medicine because a lot of the people who also work in medicine they say my secret is the medicine so but I'm saying um Mm -hmm. that I think it really is a gift for children when their parents are open-minded and they they're not afraid to Mm -hmm. introduce them so maybe you can talk to us about that a little bit how was that yeah
1: absolutely you know um it was really nice because because they you know, I had that other influence, you know, from my parents and understanding about medicines from a ceremonial point of view and from a, you know, at that time in the 90s, everything was mostly recreational, you know. And, uh, and so having that understanding that they have been used for deep work um, in various cultures throughout history and hearing about that from my parents um, definitely helped destigmatize it in my mind. There wasn't, um, you know, those risks of, you know, if I do this, am I Am I, you know, stumbling too deep into drug use or anything like that? And then even in, uh, in my recovery, because as I mentioned, I was quite fond of all the other substances in the 90s, too. And uh, in my recovery, you know, while a lot of people went straight, um, no substance, um, there was not that kind of, you know, NA and AA can kind of impress on people that, uh, you know, if you're an ex-addict, then if you, you know, if you have an LSD trip or something, you know, two weeks later, you end up in an alley smoking crack or something like that. So, you know, it kind of helped keep those types of stigmas um, from pervading my consciousness, we'll say.
0: Amazing. And yeah. what are your thoughts on the stigma that we're dealing right now as the, you know, the psychedelic renaissance is approaching, or at least some people believe that we're actually going through it now. So oh, yeah, how, yeah. do you see a lot of stigma still? Like, how do, we, how do you tackle with this in your work?
1: You know, I see so little of it now compared to where it was years ago. I mean, now, especially after Michael Pollan's book came out years ago, um, it's been a complete game changer for kind of middle America and, uh, you know, the type of uh, the type of people who normally wouldn't engage with this type of work. But, um, you know, before it was more, you know, even five, six years ago, it was an effort of me trying to convince people that this wasn't crazy stuff and that um, and that this stuff can really, really help. Now, luckily, there's so much more science out there. There's um, so much more kind of legitimate business around it and things like that. And so people are kind of getting less, um, less weirded out by it. And I'm sure there's still plenty of stigma. I think I'm luckily enough to, uh, to kind of be encircled in an area where I feel everyone I come into contact with has some sort of experience with plant medicines and psychedelics. But I mean, yeah, it's really, it's gone full swing in the past couple of years to where a lot of the old stigmas, you know, you before years ago, I look, got looked at like a, you know, silly young hippie just messing around with, with weird drugs and stuff and trying to get trippy, you know, but these are legitimate tools and these are legitimate um, uh, avenues of self-inquiry and far more uh, effective than we might, uh, than other ones I've come to find. So I think now people are seeing the science, they're seeing the effects, they're hearing the stories. So yeah, I, I believe we're in full swing in the psychedelic renaissance hopefully in the early swing, but yeah.
0: Yeah, amazing stuff. Um, I mean, I speak to one of my good friends, he's in the psychedelic space also, and when I ask him this question, how do you deal with the stigma, how to deal with all this you know, negativity around psychedelic medicines, and he says, what stigma? What negativity? I yeah. don't meet those people, because he always says, the circle that I'm in, I never meet those people. Mm-hmm. It's almost like when you're in it, you don't see it. Like you need to be, yeah. unless you step out of it. So yeah, exactly. So.
1: And it's almost, it's almost the opposite now to where the stigma is instead of a negative stigma is an over naive stigma. Now, or, I guess stigma wouldn't be the correct word for it, but um, you know, a lot of people now who are newer into the scene are looking at psychedelics like a miracle cure, like some sort of a panacea where they don't have to do any work and you can just take this and, you know, we're seeing this push with big pharma to try and create, you know, a, uh, psychedelics that don't uh, that don't uh, cause hallucination or whatever they're trying to describe the the journey aspect of the medicine as now, but um, you know I think those people are in for a bit of a rude awakening to when we find out that this no this isn't a magic pill there are no magic pills it's always going to have to be some work you know we can't get in there and get into our own self patterning if we're not willing to uh, pull up the mud boots and and face our own demons.
0: Yeah, wow. Since you touched on it, I think it's a good time to dive into that a little bit more. Um, yeah. yeah, so uh, what are your feelings about bringing it to the mainstream? What, what are you seeing? What are the dangers? What are we dealing here now? Because um, even like LinkedIn for me is a very conservative platform and and now I cannot like scroll unless I'm seeing a psychedelic mainstream news. So what are your thoughts yeah. on that?
1: You know, I have many thoughts on that. Um, You know, first and foremost, I'd say I think it is wonderful that these medicines are finally being able to be spread out to the public and to the people that normally wouldn't engage in this type of work. I think this is the beginning of a wonderful movement of um, people really facing their own shadows, dangers, dangers and things that could go wrong. Oh, there's many, you know, as I described, there's a lot of people going in with very naive notions and thinking these things will just cure you real quick and things like that. So um, I think business wise, I think we're seeing a big bubble being created. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of hope and a lot of money and a lot of really efforts of money grabbing going in rather than people really trying to do something that helps. Um, Everyone's in a scram to set up the biggest business they can, except You know, what if in a year or two we find out that people just aren't that into ketamine? (laughs) You know, there's going to be a lot of wasted money into a lot of clinics that depend on repeat use. Um, I think the sooner we can realize that a holistic approach is still necessary, that it can't just be, okay, take this and see me in two days, that it's okay, take this. This is going to open you up in this way, and then we're going to be able to deal with this using other tools, I think, is going to be very important. Other dangers and I see this a lot less in the business aspect of LinkedIn and more so the world that I came from, kind of more the underground practitioners and the more spiritual side of things, is now that psychedelics are becoming so popular and plant medicines are becoming so popular, now one of the biggest dangers is also the ego of the practitioners in Messiah complexes, which are popping up left and right. I've had to deal with a few myself. And it's scary. I mean, especially with 5-MeO-DMT, this is the most powerful psychedelic in the world. And this experience cannot be explained, described, used language for the experience is beyond mind. It's ineffable. And it really takes training in some sort of therapy or some sort of teaching modality to be able to also work with this medicine. And you're seeing a lot of people just because it's an easy medicine to acquire, they're just getting it. And then they, you know, give it to some of their friends or give it to people they know. Everyone wants to put themselves in a teacher or leader position. And then, uh, you know, they don't have the tools to help these people through their process. And psychedelics, as much uh, as much positive benefit is coming from them, they can cause as much, if not more damage um, than they can benefit if used improperly. And so I'm seeing a lot of medicine practitioners make their service about themselves. You look at their social media, you look at stuff like that, and it's all just pictures of themselves, you know, these beautiful pictures with some dramatic quote and stuff. And uh, and it just becomes about them rather than the participant. So I think that's going to be really important. People who come from the spiritual side of things, who come from the uh, the underground service, need to kind of get with the program and realize this isn't about us. This is about our participants, and this is about helping people. And I think people on the business aspect need to get with the program and realize this isn't just about making money. This is about helping people. So as long as people from both sides can kind of come and meet in the middle about service and about that, this is about the participant, not about you know return on investment for a company, and not about social media following for a practitioner. But this is about helping humanity deal with their own shit so we can stop taking our own suffering out on our neighbors and loved ones. Yeah. Part of my language.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, Powerful, powerful stuff you're sharing with us here. And uh, I listened to Rick Doblin and um, I think one of the questions that I asked to him was what he feels about the biotech companies moving in really fast uh, into uh, commodifying the medicines and they said what are your thoughts and he said fine if it's going to take that level of you know commodifying or whatever is happening right now yeah. to, to um to open up and bring these to into therapeutic space let it be because I, I didn't see any <clears throat> kind of concern from his side and i know this because he comes from a very different angle i know I know that he, uh, throughout the years, he's been in the middle of everything. And I know that he witnessed Mm. and experienced a lot of suicides, deaths and other treatable, treatable, you know, symptoms and disorders where there are no help. And I think he's coming from that Mm. kind of place. His heart must be like, yeah, okay. Yes, there are people out there who's trying to commodify, but if it's going to take that to, to bring it to the people who actually need it, let it be. So I was quite surprised. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Are you, are you concerned
1: at all? Same thing, you know, honestly, same thing. If that's what it's going to take, you know, I, I have a history of being overly opinionated about things. And I've always kind of been the type of person who, when I get into a modality, I get in full, you know, I research every single thing about it. And I really um, make sure to uh, bring the utmost integrity into the practice. And, uh, you know, that also slips into the shadow of egoism and opinionatedness. And, you know, for a long time, even before I began serving medicine, my background is in teaching yoga and meditation and uh, Vedantic philosophy. And you know, I remember when Bikram Yoga started getting really popular, and it was like, you know, I was super anti-Bikram Yoga, even though he was an awful person. Don't get me wrong; the documentary is crazy, but um, you know, it's what also got a ton of people, including myself, into yoga. And so, if that's what it takes, if it takes some over commodified, kind of mm, anemic, just drained. Strictly for marketing type of practice to get people turned on to it. Hey, cool, bring them on, you know. Because just like just you know just like me, at a certain point I realized, okay, well this type of yoga seems to be really be lacking some substance. And then from there I went and found other modalities and uh, just continued. So I think while I'm not thrilled to see certain things being over commodified and things like that, you know, if this is what it takes to get the stuff out to the public, if that's what the public needs. Who am I to go against the wind, as Paul Simon once said?
0: Yeah, yeah. And so what do you think about the education side? So what are are the uh, responsibilities as people in the frontier of this movement now? What are their responsibilities? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Responsibilities, education, educating the public on what they're really working with, educating the public on what the stuff really does, besides just the nice, light and fluffy stuff. You know, of course, we're seeing, you know, you've seen a lot of the media and a lot of the advertisements for psilocybin therapies and retreats and stuff like that. It's all fairly fluffy. It's all love and light. You know, this can be some of the scariest work a human can engage in, bar none. This can be the most confrontational work a person can ever step up to. So addressing that, addressing what can go wrong and also I feel that they're taking this angle again that was you know, outdated from the 80s and 90s of the bad trip and trying to bring this in like, oh, well, we don't want people to have a bad trip. Except what we used to call bad trips, we, we simply refer to challenging experiences. And now we know that's where most of the learning happens. When the medicine, the experience is trying to show us something that we have an aversion to and every bit of our consciousness is trying to shut it out by translating it into a terrifying experience. If we don't have the the tool belt, if we don't have the the foundational practice or understanding to know, to surrender to that and to say, okay, what have you got to show me? If we are just trying to look for the positive and just trying to look for the feel good stuff, we're going to miss out on the real work because it takes facing our demons. It takes really getting in there and, and facing the scary stuff to have that catharsis, you know, that results in that levity, that blissful lightness on the other side. So I think educating on what they're really on, what people are really getting themselves into is very important. Um, I think there needs to be an importance of making these uh, making sure it's accessible. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the psychedelic therapies and treatments we're seeing are very high end and are not um, accessible to most of the people that actually need them. So I think it's very important for, and I'm not saying don't have high end uh, offerings. I'm not saying don't, you know, have prices that reflect your type of offering, but also leave room, leave room for making it um for making it affordable as well. You know, we always do at least one to two um, scholarship spaces on our retreats um, and things like that. And just, you know, different price tiers, just making sure that you're not eliminating everybody except for very well-to-do clientele. So um, I think that's going to be really important in the future. And I think making sure people who are on the front lines of this medicine, people who are serving it, people who are working with it are doing their own work are doing their own internal work. It can be very easy for a teacher just to kind of set their own process to the side and just go full into service. And, you know, it seems we can even feel like it to ourselves, like, oh, yes, this is the right thing to be doing. I should put myself aside to be in service. However, if people are not doing their own work, if they're not getting to understand their own inner patternings, if they're not getting to understand the underlying traumas and experiences behind their own behavioral patterns, then they are really doing the world a disservice. Um, We cannot put ourselves in a proper teacher position or position of authority if we are not doing our own work. And so people making sure that they've done the work and can be a hollow vessel for participants and can really assist participants through their process, not through what we're projecting from ourselves onto their process. So I think that'll be really important in the future. I think those will be the, the top ones.
0: Yeah, I love it. Loving your energy, by the way, it's very upbeat upbeat and you're just thank you of, thank you you've yeah this kind of shows that you've been doing a lot of work 100 <laughs> percent. and um uh, good job that you opened a little window so i i read a little article very recently um one of the concerns was that one guy is going to take a bad trip and that guy is going to be in a position where he can exploit it and then it's all going to come crashing down so i know what you mean with um if so my understanding coming from a holistic background, sometimes, yeah. sometimes like we don't have the capacity and we don't have the tools to interpret the experience, integrate the experience. Sometimes we don't have these things and it's easy. Yeah. And, and if, if all of us are walking, talking, uh, deceived and blind spots, every, you know, because we can't see ourselves for for what we are. And as a Mm -hmm. teacher, as a guide, as a facilitator, like you said, if we don't do the work, then imagine uh, holding space for those who don't have the capacity. uh, All they're going to interpret, it's going to come from a perspective of limitation. It's going to come from a trauma response interpretation. Like I've experienced a lot of ceremonies where people would Um, just kind of label these things as entities this and that but it's it's almost like and I feel like the teacher's responsibility or the facilitator's responsibility is always bringing them back to themselves look there's nothing outside that the medicine can put in but it's whatever is amplified it is your own work it's just amplified so you can see because on a a daily uh, waking you know state we're not able to see our blind spots we're not able to see mm-hmm. what 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 is deceived and what is suppressed and what is what we carry and and like you said um i think there's going to be a lot of conversations that needs to happen around this not all love and light and and also you know it's not about seeking the positive benefits right or at least you know yeah especially post-pandemic world i feel like those retreats are going to be filled with people who desperately seeking connection and they're so fed up of the lockdowns and they're so fed up of the restrictions. I can just imagine in the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of amplified demand for uh, retreats, right? So I think this is a great time to dive into why
1: 5MEO? Oh, yes. So firstly, what is 5MEO? 5MEO DMT is uh, nicknamed, has a few great nicknames, the crown jewel of the entheogenic kingdom, It has the nickname, uh, the God Molecule. What separates 5-MeO-DMT from all other psychedelics is in its peak experience, it um, quite often allows the participant to slip into what is known as a non-dual state. So there is a complete cessation of self-activity, a complete cessation of the mind. This is the true definition of the ego death. And that's a term that gets thrown out a lot without people really understanding what it is. People are like, oh, yeah, you know, I had this ego death. What is that? What is the ego? The ego is the part of our mind, the part of our personality, or the part of our our being that gives us the experience of being a separate individual. And when we work with ego-dissolving medicines, where they target in the brain is the default mode network. So the areas of the brain that are responsible for giving us the experience of an individual and in its peak experience, 5-MEO shuts it all down. It quiets those areas. And what is that like? Well, that's the mystical experience. That is the great ineffable, inscrutable, indescribable initiation that has been sought after for millennia upon millennia. Every ancient culture had some way of, of, um, of going into this initiation. Ancient Egypt, uh, India, of course. In Greece and Rome, they had the, uh, the Mystery School of Ulysses. And that was an ongoing tradition for over 2,000 years. And it was said to be, you know, that was said to be the school that held humanity together. The gift of being able to uh, die before you die. And so 5-MeO-DMT is the only psychedelic that reliably um, results in that experience. Of course, we can bring ourselves to a state of ego dissolution through very high doses of various psychedelics, but none will be like this. This is the Big Bang. And... You know, it's a whole process. The actual experience itself is only 15 to 45 minutes. And it can be described as there being a light that is everything and infinite in nature. And that light is so powerful and so overwhelming that it just absorbs everything that you are and you lose yourself within this light or more so remember yourself within this light as true infinite consciousness. And so why this experience is so ineffable, why it's so inscrutable is because it can only be experienced when the mind is shut down, when there is no longer an individual self observation point. So there's no, you know, there's no self to be, to be saying, wow, this is crazy. Or wow, look at that. None of that. It is pure, undifferentiated, oceanic, boundless consciousness. And um, that is the big experience. You know, we've heard reports of people having the mystical experience, even atheists saying they felt that they were bathed in God's love. This is that. It is a full religious experience. And every religion, every faith, they've all got a word for this. The Christians and Catholics call it the beatific vision. In Islam, they call it fitra. The yogis call it samadhi. The Buddhists call it nirvana. Everyone's got a word for it. But essentially, it is that essential surrendering of the self to the infinite. And it is a temporary letting go of all you know to be or all you think to be true and all you think you know about yourself to be put into the blender of oblivion momentarily and to remember yourself as timeless, boundless, undifferentiated awareness. And so why does that medicine matter? Why does it matter that people have this huge experience? Because we as humans are suffering, suffering more than we've ever suffered before. And for us to be suffering, you know, it doesn't have to be some extreme acute PTSD. It doesn't need to be physical ailment. It doesn't need to be dire straits. Suffering can come from so many areas. The yogis say there's five root causes of all suffering. Avidya, which is ignorance of our own true nature is infinity. Then there is um, Asmita, which is egoism. When we begin to uh, over identify with our individual personification and take ourselves a little too seriously. Then raga, which is attachments, attachments to our personality, to our surroundings, to our belongings, to our lifestyle. And then uh, dvesa, which is aversion, aversion to leaving our comfort bubble. And we know that growth very seldom happens within the, uh, the bubble of comfort. And when we've done all that, we've limited ourselves to this individual experience. We've over to ourselves. We've decided that our whole reality is just what we have and what's around us and what is tangible then naturally we're not gonna wanna stray outside of that because that is unknown outside of there. And that's naturally gonna lead into the fifth, which is Abani Vesa, which is fear, ultimately fear of death. And if we don't remember that we are infinite consciousness, we are certainly gonna not want this all to end. So, you know, we use an in-depth preparation process and really have participants go in there. We've got different journaling prompts. We've got different ways to begin self-inquiry. And there it's all about lenses. So, you know, as I said, my background is in yoga, but I do not expect, you know, someone to come into my philosophical paradigm just to work with me. So we use uh, the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey as our main framework, as that is a transcultural geographical map that's innate within the human experience for everybody. And then we've interwoven yogic philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, hermeticism, um, alchemy, you know, the whole nine yards, all the good stuff. And given participants this nice, Exactly that transcultural geography, so they can find their footing in what can be an unnerving process, because preparing to do this medicine is terrifying. We always say the medicine begins right when you say yes, so the moment you say yes to this work, your subconscious is going to start to feel into what's con- confrontational in there. Your mind is going to see that you are heading towards oblivion, essentially, that you are heading towards the unknown, so there's insecurities, those uncertainties are going to start to come up and that's part of the medicine. You know, um, that's a big part of the process. So we work in depth with our participants via zoom calls for weeks before their experience and help them unpack their process and begin their process, see which languages and lenses they're most comfortable with, you know, whether it's science, whether it's religion, whether it's yoga, spirituality, whether it's, you know, any of them, we try and say burst in as many languages because they're all just simply lenses through which we can attempt to view the ineffable. So When they come for their retreat, you know, our retreats are generally five days and there's multiple medicine experiences in there. And it's really at that point about using the medicine as a catalyst for cathartic release. And so when we get the participant in there, you know, you get them on the medicine, and it's not like you just go immediately to non-duality. You don't just go immediately to the Godhead. There has to be a falling away process first. There has to be a surrender. And so that's what is known as the gateless gates. You know, there is a threshold that one reaches and is the last, it is the farthest one can go while keeping individual identity. And there is where you have to surrender, surrender yourself, surrender your entire belief system, essentially. And that's where the real confrontational part can come in because the mind will often translate that as if I go any farther, I'm going to die. If I go any farther, I'm never coming back because the mind does not understand infinity at all. It's something we can't truly grasp or wrap our heads around. So facing those proverbial demons at the gates, you know, the bits of the mind, the aspects that come out with their last cry for help, for survival, once we let that go, then comes the cathartic release, then comes just a big dump of patterning. And we watch participants go through this an actual physical release, whether it be through intense vibration, if you watch videos of people on 5 meo you may see very, 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 very fast trembling and shaking. I mean, doesn't look real. It's wild. Um, shaking and trembling is a natural way for the body body to release uh, trauma. If you watch a lion, you know, video of a lion almost getting a gazelle, and that gazelle just barely gets away. If you look close, it does this, you know, this little shake it out, and that shakes the traumatic event out of the fascia, the connective tissue, and that's where we store so much of our stuff. But we're not trained these days to release our own baggage, so our you know our connective tissue is just wound up so tight, and so uh, that catharsis really is a huge catharsis. So we watch people either go through tremors, screaming, a big, nice cry, even physical purging, um, you know, just some sort of letting go. Some sort, you know, sometimes there's no outward appearance of uh, of catharsis, but they're in it, and uh, and then after that. Then is the entire process of, okay, how do we take an experience that is so far beyond the mind and make it applicable for our daily lives? How do we make that experience benefit our experience here somehow? So then it's about using integrative practices, whether from Western psychotherapy, brain hacking type of Joe Dispenza um, type of practices, to Eastern mysticism, to alchemy, to whatever lens or language this participant needs to continue the path of self-inquiry. Because after we've had that initial experience, imagine it like a hand grenade being thrown into the proverbial lake of your subconscious. And so then it's about dealing with all the things that come up, because that's going to knock all the patterning to surface. So then we get in there with the integrative practices and also low doses of the medicine too. And we use it like a scalpel and get surgical with the process. And then from there, there's aftercare. So aftercare is really important, not just with all psychedelics, but especially with 5-MeO-DMT. Um, being there for them, you know, for the following couple weeks, because as uh, my favorite teacher Adya Shanti says, enlightenment is a destructive process and the peak experience of 5-MeO-DMT is absolutely a peak enlightenment experience, except when we have glimpsed that truth, then there's going to be a falling away of different belief systems and patternings that can no longer hold to that truth. And that can be the scary part for participants where they feel like they're going crazy, where it feels like their world is falling apart because there has to be a falling away. Once your awareness experienced that type of boundless consciousness and understands itself a bit more, some of the old forms of torture we tended to put ourselves through are no longer going to seem as appealing. Some of the old you know, prisons that we kept ourselves shackled in are all of a sudden going to appear with the gates wide open except the mind tends to reach and grasp for that which is falling away simply because it is familiar so even our you know our innermost patternings that you know tend us to have us in the deepest of suffering are certain you know mind patterns that are just awful that you know different triggers and stuff like that even though of course we want to get rid of it the mind is still going to grasp for it when it's falling away because it's familiar our minds love suffering way more than we'd care to admit so being there for participants in that process and offering aftercare integration support, um, different reading material as well. And then we do, a, um, we do individualized kind of integration plans with sets of practices that are kind of suitable for, for their process as well. But um, why 5-MeO? Because it is the most powerful, fast acting substance on the planet that has the potential to allow us to understand our own patterns of suffering and release them subsequently.
0: Wow. That was so much to process. Thank you so much. This <laughs> is beautiful. Um, are we talking about uh, the Bufo alvarius 5-MeO or is it the, I know that one comes from the toad, the other one is not. So which one are we talking about?
1: So there's various, various, um, it comes in, 5-MeO is found in the Bufo alvarius toad. It's found in Verola um, Wambisa and a few other Amazonian plants. It's found in, um, Yopo, which is a snuff as well as Vilca and a few other areas in nature. It's also produced within the human body, mainly in the lungs and the soft tissue of the eyes and the kidneys, I believe. And it is synthetically made also. And, um, that's mainly where we use, we, we generally promote and tend to use synthetically made, uh, 5-MeO-DMT, especially over Bufo Alvarius. Uh, when Bufo started getting popular, we were serving that mainly, and it wasn't too long before we saw what was happening. I mean, the toad population was being decimated. Um, the cartels started getting involved in Sonora. You started seeing packages of medicine coming with this, these uh, bits of black carbon-looking stuff that's actually toxic to smoke, but they are putting it in there to weigh it down, you know, just to just to rip people off, essentially. Um, and, you know, all that aside, there's there's 11 additional alkaloids with the Bufo alvarious secretion, eight of which are known to be cardiotoxic. Even though they're in such small amounts, they still have been known to affect. And, you know, as we deal with a lot of elderly um, uh, clientele as well, we like to stay very safe. Um, Things that don't mess with the heart if they don't need to. The experience between synthetically made 5-MeO and Bufo 5-MeO is exactly the same. Exactly the same. If there wasn't for a taste and the amount of difference in smoke and stuff like that, people wouldn't know the difference. And um, so, you know, there was a big push where people got stuck in the paradigm of natural versus synthetic. And it's an understandable paradigm. However, we've got to understand that that's just the mind attempting to create stories. Of course, natural is going to be better than synthetic in certain instances, food and things like that. However, not everything is black and white. Not everything can be these cut and dry rules like that. And so I found a lot of people who were still in the stage of being stuck in the um, in over-identifying with their spiritual lineage or over-identifying with what they think a spiritual person is supposed to look like, etc., cetera. Um, we find a lot of that kind of kickback against synthetic, you know, oh well, you know, this toad stuff was made by God and made in nature, or, you know, this stuff was made in a lab. Okay. So the lab and the person in it were made by God and nature as well. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's really just semantics at that point. But yeah, we work. We work with uh, synthetic, and also a main reason is dosage specificity. We really like to know exactly how much we're giving someone. Toad secretion can have anywhere from ten percent five meo to almost thirty percent five meo, and that's a huge margin of error. Um, The difference in those doses are, you know, you could go for giving you. You could be attempting to give someone what we call a hug dose or a middle range kind of low dose, and you know that could have a higher five meo concentration. And you could send them straight into the godhead without wanting to. So uh, I think dose of specificity is really important for us. So yeah, those are those are why we use synthetic.
0: Amazing. So so the the mm-hmm. works is in in the dose and um has, you know, Hamilton Morris. He's he's yeah. always talking about the. I think he made a lot of impact, didn't he, with bringing out the pamphlet and and really um, mm-hmm. kind of bringing awareness that we shouldn't really touch the toads, but look, you can have the same medicine somehow yeah. alternatively, and you don't have to touch the toads and stuff like that. And, yeah, the fact, yeah. and the fact that there is no lineage and there is no um, known, or we haven't found anything that says that the toads were being used for too long. I mean, it's only been, yeah. God knows how many years, but it's not that long. 30 some odd years, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense what you said about the synthetic and the dosing is so important. Especially if you're working with elderly, if you're working with, I always say people with uh, not a lot of capacity, I think you've got to be really careful with the dose, right? This is where the yeah. key is. So thank you for clarifying that. And also, of course I was going to ask you about the psychosomatic experience, but you already told me the trampoline, <laughs> all of that. <clears throat> I love that because um, I feel like some of us uh, in the West or the modern world, we kind of so shy to scream, to cry, Mm -hmm. to to let our bodies tremble. And, you know, you said earlier about the surrendering, Uh, Mm coming from again, coming from the holistic background, I always hold those two together. For me, surrendering is just allowing your body to do that intelligent stuff that it needs to do and it's wired to do. Uh, It can be as simple as that. It doesn't need to be scary. It doesn't need to be, because I always believe that as much as we are, trauma burden because all of us somehow we, we don't get away with trauma we all hold it mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. at the same time we also hold this beautiful harmony the homeostasis that body is craving to create life and create harmony and create beauty i think it kind of we, we hold it together and for me surrendering can be just letting your body just do what it needs to do if it's trembling shaking crying right because it could be just one yes. step towards your uh, building your capacity and this this would be my understanding um okay so you're where are you based
1: um right now we are based in tepos mexico so about an hour and an hour and a half south of mexico city uh they call it the land of eternal spring amazingly beautiful area spring weather year round our flagship center is opening here um, we're looking to open hopefully in september and then we have a center opening in a second quarter of next year in Costa Rica as well. And we're teamed up with uh, hive bio for that one. Amazing. And then we'll have operations going in, uh, in Jamaica as well. We're teamed up with a uh, silo wellness to start doing five MEO retreats in Jamaica this summer. I believe in August we start
0: mm, so much is going on. So, um, yeah. and you, you recently had the webinar, which I really feel bad cause I missed it. I really wanted to come. Uh, maybe you can just kind of give us a five minutes of, of the webinar that you presented, uh, not long ago I believe right it was last week I can't remember exactly which
1: but, uh... one I've done a couple in the past couple of weeks um mm. I think you might be talking uh the, um, there was one we did with uh Nation. Mm-hmm. um I think that was the most recent one um and that was my partner Victoria and I um and just explaining kind of I believe the subject was Samadhi and 5-MeO-DMT so That's we were covering you That's know talking yeah, yeah talking about the mystical experience you know the mystical experience, the word mystical experience is something being thrown around a lot in psychedelia, except it's very highly, almost ignored by the uh, in the clinical lens. You know, there's so much study done around it and so many, uh, so many people speaking about it, but what is the mystical experience? What do you do with it? You know, we see, okay, 84% of people to do this medicine like this had a mystical experience. These people said the mystical experience was the most meaningful thing in their life, but okay, what is the mystical experience? How do you navigate to and from it? So as I said, our main framework is Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And that is the innate archetypal story of the hero leaving their place of comfort, leaving their familiar land and uh, stepping into unknown territories to engage in the work. And it is there. They face their demons. They, uh, they get the boon. They get the elixir and they come back to the community. And, uh, you know, that's really all just a such an important process that gets so little attention and you know it's just always about chasing the positive love and light and whatnot but the hero's journey is scary many parts of it are terrifying and so um you know kind of going over that whole lens and showing how showing how there's so many different lenses wrapped up into the same thing and how it's far less about the specific language of the lens and more about the experience itself or else it becomes about the finger pointing at the sun rather than the sun itself. And it's tough, though. it's a bit of a uh, a bit of an issue because the experience itself cannot really be spoken about. You know, it's something that we don't have language for, It's something we don't have the mental faculties for. So then it really becomes about preparing for and returning from, what to do on the way there, and what can be done returning from, to draw this experience into your daily life. And then furthermore, how do you share it with the community? How does this get spread around? Because that often gets mistaken as, oh, well, this worked for me. So obviously, this is the exact way it has to work for everyone else. And you know, that's what happened with religion. It's uh, the the ego tends to attach to that which uh, that which in which it finds liberation. So uh, then it becomes a lot less about telling people, okay, so to do this, you have to go there, do this retreat, take this psychedelic, and do this type of work. But more so, hey, I found my path. You know, into the unknown and back, and knowing everyone's path is going to be completely unique and individual, but allowing the shifted you, you know, allowing that new presence within you to inspire others around you and to uh, almost give them permission in a way to leave the regularity of their daily life, to leave the normalcy of what they're used to and step into the unknown in order to uh, find those demons and get that boon.
0: Yes, yes, I love that. I think more mm-hmm. so embodied energy because when we do the deepest work, I think it kind of reflects on the way we carry ourselves, can be visible, yeah. you know, your eyebrows soften, your jaws soften, you know, like you can see when somebody's going through that process. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um so I have a couple questions. Um, so what would you advise people if they're interested in such a big experience like five MEO and mm-hmm. what are the what, what what should they be um considering what should they be looking for especially like going Things to find consider the, like finding the right retreat is like a big th- big deal also right yeah so if you couldn't maybe just yeah um
1: absolutely absolutely um so if someone is looking to work with five meo dmt whether retreat or a one-off ceremony first most important thing is to research who you're sitting with research the practitioner, get to know the practitioner. I cannot stress this enough. It really, really matters who you sit with us on this medicine. And for God's sakes, don't try and do it yourself. Um, you know, I also work as an integration specialist and quite often I have people reach out who are, you know, either tried the medicine themselves or just some kind of, you know, we call them road shamans. You know, the guys that just tour around going, blasting people off and then just leaving and um, just collecting money. Um, you know, it can be really, really, really important that for safety reasons they don't do it alone and two that they have someone who knows the medicine and knows the process to assist them um you know we've heard of people being like oh yeah you know i just had my my sister you know holding space but she's never done medicines or anything like that and so you need to have someone who first of all knows how to keep you alive if things go wrong because things go wrong with this medicine you know person can be on their back and they may start to purge they need to be rolled into recovery position things like that um all those safety aspects are very important. So it just goes right into set and setting. Um, So researching your facilitator, making sure that they abide by best practices. And the best practices are, um, for 5MEO were put out by a secret group called the Conclave. And they're on the Conclave website. Um, Making sure participants abide by best practices. Making sure participants have, I mean, not participants, excuse me, practitioners. Making sure they have experience. Making sure they are actually trained by someone Making sure that they've been doing this for a little while and not just, you know, wanted to look cool on social media. So they ordered some toad from some guy in Sonora and, you know, strapped a crystal to their head and, uh, and started giving it to people. It's um, very, very important. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of resources to be able to really research your practitioners right now. Um, there is I did an episode uh um, of the plant medicine podcast with Dr. Lynn Morsky, that was exactly that on how to find a retreat leader or facilitator. And I think one of the main things we spoke about was making sure that they've done their work, making sure that making sure that they've done their work before they started trying to serve it to other people. Cause that's the biggest issue is practitioners just getting their, you know, having one big experience or like a few big experiences with this medicine be like, Oh wow, that's so amazing. You know, and naturally You're going to want everyone you love to experience it. Naturally, you're going to want people to experience it, except the ego is the part that's going to get in the way and say, I'm the one who should do this and give it to people without any type of understanding or training. So making sure that they're in it to be of service and rather than to inflate their own um, ego uh, is going to be really, really important because that's, I'd say, 90% of practitioners out there. um, That's what you're dealing with. So um, that and... Making sure they know how to keep you safe and making sure there's aftercare. Talk to them them about their aftercare process. Talk to them about their integration process. If they stumble on that or don't come up with much to say or say, you know, that they have resources, they need to have a specific plan on how to hold space for you after your experience and a specific plan on how to prepare you. Those would be the main ones.
0: Amazing. Beautiful. All right, as we come into the end of our conversation, I just want to also touch on something that's really important to me as, as my personal inquiry. Um, so if this experience is so big and it's if this experience is so ineffable and, and we lose ourselves in this physical body, like why the search, do you think? I know it's been done mil- for millennia, for millennia, millennia. Like why is the search? What is it that we want? What is it mm. like? Because it reminds me of the... Um, mystical cycle also like is it like there is this really popular story joel that maybe you've heard there was this nun that she spent like 40 years in the monastery and because she's a nun and she kind of left the monastery and retired whatever they said wow you know 40 years a long time you must have talked to the angels you must have talked to the god can you tell us what did you learn and she kind of paused and she said i learned how to eat and sleep so what are your thoughts? Like, what is this search, this innate desire to know?
1: I think, you know, the, uh, the yogis divided up the ages into what they call yugas. And there are four yugas. And instead of it being a linear timeline, it is cyclical and goes in a spiral. And we have been in what is known as Kali Yuga, which is the fourth age and is the age of chaos, the age of confusion, uncertainty. And we are transitioning from Kali Yuga into Satya Yuga, the age of truthfulness, the golden age. And so for this to happen, if we are all the same quantum field of consciousness, experiencing ourselves subjectively through individual experiences, then consciousness itself is, seems to be going through a bit of a purging process right now in so many different ways. I mean, we're seeing it just with, I mean, with the pandemic, of all the old structures, so many of the old structures, the old stories, systems just crumbling before our eyes, old ways of thinking showing themselves to be known as ineffective, um, huge paradigms shifting, this deep desire to begin to understand the roots of consciousness, this push towards AI and to understand the singularity. These are, this is where we're at in the evolution of our consciousness, is understanding where we came from or attempting to remember where we came from. And so I think that it is right in line that 5-MeO came, came, uh, came into the scope at this time. You know, it's funny. I, for the first time, tried 5-20 years ago. It was completely legal in the States until 2011. Um, and I don't even remember my experience. I don't remember it being a meaningful experience. I, you know, I knew plenty of people who did it back then, and it just did not catch on because I don't think we were ready for it yet. I don't believe consciousness has, had, had evolved to the point yet to where it was ready for this type of work, but now we seem to be in an accelerated, rapid um, state of healing and state of release, and it's as if all of humanity is, you know, in what what uh, what would be called uh, spiritual emergency, you know, and we're in the we're in the grips of a full awakening. Except awakenings do seem detrimental; they seem chaotic, and they seem scary, and so all of humanity is kind of in it at the same time. So I think it's right in suit that. Once psychedelics have come into play, and that especially 5 MEO DMT, this, I mean, the great initiation finally being brought back into society. Um, I have great hopes for it. When we can deal with our own suffering and deal with our own limited views of ourselves in the world, then the amount of suffering that is caused by other people will decrease exponentially.
0: Wow, that's so good. Thanks for sharing that and do you think yeah. pandemic pandemic is also one of the reasons that we are experiencing now because this cosmic purging is happening would you say that i believe
1: something? so whatever the story with the pandemic is you know plenty of people feel it was man made plenty of people feel, you know who doesn't really matter we have to remember that we're part of nature that all of us not just some people are all a part of the same force of nature and humanity needed a timeout humanity needed to get spanked on the butt and told to sit down and be quiet for a little while and deal with our shit. And when we're put into, um, isolation like that, when we're put into quarantine like that, we're left with ourselves, not as many distractions, not as many things to pass the time. So those demons are right there, are right there. And so we've seen so much change come from this. I mean, I think it's, you know, the worst and best thing to happen. It, um, I definitely feel that it is fully in line with our evolution and with what is happening and was a, a necessary evil in many ways to, um, we couldn't call it an evil really, but it was a necessary situation because we were quickly, quickly, quickly headed um, into a place that we probably couldn't reverse, you know, from there. And so just seeing, you know, the, the benefit that happened to the earth and the climate and stuff like that in those, those few months where, you know, everyone was kind of really quarantined for a little while. Just seeing what can happen, what can be done for healing, I think was something that humanity needed. And for the first time in our you know, known history, we we're all, everyone in the world was in something together. And uh, as dividing as everything feels, it still brought humanity together to some degree. And um, I think this, yeah, I think a lot will come from it, but I definitely feel it was part of the whole process.
0: Yeah, it is paradoxically. We are separated, but then we got together. Uh, one of my friends yeah. calls it. He calls it the uh, collective rites of passage initiation. Yeah. Great initiation. Mm-hmm. I wow, love it. Joel, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you. Oh my god. Yes, so, indeed. Likewise. So glad, so happy to be connected with you. Um, so we will add all your links and your amazing uh, offers in the comments for our listeners i'm sure they enjoy this it's so packed with so much information i think i need to re-listen to you again to really process i'm sure a lot of our listeners feel the same thank you so much for dropping all that wisdom and thank you my
1: pleasure my pleasure thank you thank you
0: keep offering and keep doing what you're doing and i think this is so amazing that you guys are so involved in this and being in the front line of what's going on now so appreciate you
1: thank you thank you likewise thanks for having me on
0: you're welcome i'm sure we'll follow your journey and hopefully have you back again part two at some point yes thank you so much everybody, for tuning in this is joel and he's doing incredible work we will share with you some of his offerings and thank you for tuning in i'll see you guys on the next one much love bye for now Thank you so much for joining us. Psychedelic Conversations podcast is designed to educate, inform and expand awareness. For more information, please head over to psychedelicconversations.com. You can also share with your friends or leave a review so that we can reach more people. You can also join us in our private Facebook group to keep the conversation going. This show is for information purposes only and it is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.